I wanted people back when I began to really understand and challenge the answers that they were getting from what I call branded repair. So I don't like the word authorized. Authorized implies authority. I'm not sure we want to use the word authority with the guys that are the least likely to be able to diagnose your phone problem. Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make a monthly podcast for the Restart Project. The Restart Project is a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. This month's episode of the Restart Project podcast is a deep dive into how the right to repair movement looks to a repairer across the pond. We talked to renowned founder of iPad Rehab, Jessa Jones, about her unique physician-esque approach to repair and how that helps her in her work repairing logic boards. She also breaks down for us the shocking business model or pyramid scheme that is branded repair and her fear that serialization will only become more commonplace in electronics design. We discuss what can be done on a government level to combat this and what we can do to help make that happen. Thanks for having me on the show. My name is Jessa Jones, and I'm here as the owner of iPad Rehab. And iPad Rehab is a bit of a poor name for what we actually do. iPad Rehab is in the business of micro-soldering and data recovery, which means that our job is to take broken logic boards mostly of iPhones, some other mobile devices, and breathe life back into them after they've been in the toilet or the swimming pool or the washing machine, put them under the microscope, get out a multimeter, and get them to turn back on. So that's what we do, and I'm located here in a small town that's outside of Rochester, New York, here in the good old USA. Many of our listeners are probably very familiar with what you do, but uh, how and why did you first get involved in repair? So I started out surely convinced that I was meant to be a molecular biologist, and I went to college, I majored in cell and molecular biology and genetics. I worked in a research lab, and then I went to Johns Hopkins University, and I got a PhD in human genetics, an obvious career path for someone that's going to end up fixing iPhones. So along the way, I had a faculty position at a college. I taught. I loved teaching. And then I had two kids, and then I had two more kids, and then I decided to take the plunge and become a stay-at-home mom which is the the most terrifying thing I've ever done. I love being a stay-at-home mom. And eventually I think a lot of stay-at-home moms feel that after a while it's a grind and you really want to use your brain. So when my kids started breaking their iPhones and iPads, I started saying, how do you fix these? And I had a a fairly well-known story now where my twin girls, when they were two or three years old, they flushed my iPhone down the toilet And I I couldn't get it out. And I got really, really frustrated. And I went down the hardware store and I bought a drill to to try to, you know, use one of these augers to dig it out. And I could feel that it's in there, but I couldn't get it. So I went to the internet, how to remove toilet and figured out it wasn't really that hard to, to rip your toilet out, take it out to your front yard and smash it to get that phone out of there. I recovered my iPhone out of that toilet and I tried to fix it. So 
that phone really changed my life because in the end, after I took it all apart and put a new battery in it, it would turn on and you could make calls and it had all the pictures and it was amazing, but it would not charge. And it wasn't the battery and it wasn't the charge port and I would troubleshoot and troubleshoot. It was something on the logic board itself. And it seemed like that's gotta be a solvable problem. And I'd look at it, a city of components that I didn't understand. And I felt like I gotta be able to fix this. And that led me to connecting with people all over the world in countries where there's a greater pressure to repair than we have here in the US where you just go down and buy a new phone. And there was an amazing amount of worldwide expertise on how to troubleshoot things at the logic board level. So I bought a microscope and I bought a soldering iron. It took me two years to fix that phone and I made it a lot worse along the way, but eventually it led to this new career. And once you get to be good at micro soldering and bringing dead logic boards back to life, then you realize that the real place to apply that is data recovery. So anybody that's dropped a phone in the toilet and there's important pictures on there, other moms with the baby pictures on there, I realized I can make those things come back to life so that you can type in the passcode and recover the data. So that led to what I primarily do now, which is training others how to do micro soldering and data recovery. And now we're starting to move into digital forensics and helping out with law enforcement. And it's been incredibly fun and extremely rewarding also, just for women in technology, my team is all other stay-at-home moms and kids, high schoolers, and one stay-at-home dad, and we really enjoy the intersection of technology and helping people and their stories, especially when you're calling up other folks and saying, hey, I recovered your data. That's just a really fun thing to do. It's an amazing story. I love the fact that it starts with an iPhone being dropped in a toilet. That is an unusual place for such a kind of inspiring narrative to to spring out from. And what is so intriguing about logic board repair in particular? I mean, I think we've touched on this a little bit. Can you talk people through like the process of logic board repair? So if you look at a logic board under the microscope, it really looks like a city. And if you look at an iPhone 7, for example, and logic board, they're all the same. And it becomes a city that you start to know, oh, here's the corner and here's the guys down the block and here's the three in a row. And it becomes very familiar and it starts to have common failure points. Oh, this guy, that's where the water goes. It comes in the ear speaker and it goes under this chip all the time. And then you'll start to become extremely familiar and find that there are signature problems that iPhones in general, each one is a different patient and it will have its collection of common colds, which over time you can learn how to identify. And there's a lot of pattern recognition. And back in my PhD days, I spent time studying gene expression in pancreatic cancer versus normal and doing pattern recognition to see what genes are particular to cancer versus normal. And applying that sort of skill of figuring out answers to problems where there's no instruction manual, you know, it's surprisingly really applicable to this, which is figure out where there's nobody wants you to be able to do this, but figure out how to recognize patterns, measure failure points, and just get to know this different system. And what we do really is very much like being in grad school as a molecular biologist. You're making a hypothesis, you're measuring tiny stuff under a microscope, and you're trying to solve problems. 
Again, that's really, really interesting. I mean, because a lot of the time on Restart, when talking to fixers and talking to repairers in general, like the metaphors of doctors and of detectives are the two that come up the kind of most. And it's interesting hearing from someone who actually has the science background, you know, that it does make sense to see repair in those terms. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things I tell my students is that I'd like them to learn how to think like physicians. And my husband is a physician, so he's a neurologist. He doesn't really really like it when I go home and I'm like, oh yeah, you had a couple of patients today. They had strokes and you're saving their life. That's pretty much what I did. (laughs) But my phones were brain dead and it was the CPU. And I tell my students to, to think like a physician rather than an engineer. An engineer is going to measure all the things and they're going to be interested in just the tiniest difference between what the specification is and what they're measuring. And that's not very practical. So the, like the name of my course is practical board repair, where we start by looking at the dead phone as a patient, which is I want to know the history, because if a phone stopped working when it dropped, that's different than if it went into water. And that's different if it stopped working on the charger. And each one is going to start my story and it's going to steer me in a different way as I look for really a differential diagnosis. What's most likely here? And then I'm going to start ruling that out. And that's what lets you actually be able to fix hundreds of phones rather than dedicate your life to any one phone in enormous detail. Right. And as you've kind of already mentioned, at iPad Rehab, your team members are all or mostly former stay-at-home parents and and also mainly women. Is that a conscious decision that you've made in terms of training and hiring? And if it is, why is that important to you? Um, It's not really a conscious decision. I think that any person that stumbles into, hey, I just made a business. You're figuring out how to make a business along the way. And it's going to be very natural for you to see the skill set in the people that are around you. So for example, I hired Sunday, who is our business manager, when she came to me with a story of her own toilet phone. She dropped her phone in a event porta potty. Uh, I don't know if that's oh, the same no. word. That, with the blue water, it's heavily disgusting. Just walk mm. away and get a new phone. She didn't do that. She's like, how can I solve this problem? She went to the guy that makes kettle corn. And she says, give me two of those bags. And they said, okay, here you go. So she puts the kettle corn bag on her arms, like enormous gloves, goes to the porta potty, leans in and finds her phone, gets it out, and then comes over to my house. Just oh, fix my phone. And, you know, so I hired Sunday, you know, because, you know, she, she was a problem solver and she's extremely good at what she does. And so now it's almost like in order to work at iPad Rehab, you have to have dropped a phone in a toilet at some point and then done some kind of amazing save. You know, I would notice the strengths of people around me. And my group at the time was the local mom's club where we all had these small children. There are amazing women that are super smart who, as long as you can be extremely flexible, want to use their brain. And it's been like that the entire time. As we've gone, we've started to recruit from the high school robotics team which is very strong in our area. Mark is our lead technician. Mark is a stay-at-home dad who largely works from his home half a country away, and he'll come up and teach the course with me. So we're really looking for smart people that are analytical 
and are going to thrive in an environment that's a whole lot of figure it out. Right. I mean, and it makes sense that stay-at-home mums and dads would uh, have that skill set. You know, there's lots of problem solving every day with kids. The types of component level repairs that you do, they're not very common in general in, in terms of repairing. And we've heard you mention the importance of accessing schematics in order to do your work and an aspect that no proposed regulation currently contemplates either in the US or in Europe. Why are schematics important for repairers and how should manufacturers behave differently? A schematic is a blueprint that just shows the connections of various chips on the device. But I could take a schematic and I could order all of these chips and I could put them on a bare board and I would not have an iPhone. Because the magic in the iPhone is in the programming. So the logic board itself is just a vessel for the heart and soul of your phone. So what I do with the schematics is I just figure out how things are attached, right? When we buy a phone, we are indirectly buying a schematic because just like I could dissect your leg and figure out where all the blood vessels go, I could dissect a phone and with extraordinary effort. And by extraordinary effort, I mean, it would probably take, you know, grad students a year or more to actually physically map out all these connections, but they could do it. So if we said, then why do you need schematics? Just do that then, because it would be too slow. It would require an enormous effort. So the schematic itself is something that helps me be able to provide practical repair. There are a lot of common faults. Chargers damage the charging chips on the phone. Charging chips are generic and you can replace them. I mean, I've got Anna and Ryan that are both still in their teens routinely replacing these chips. Like this is something that the world should do. Repair logic boards when they have common problems that are easy, that are not hard to diagnose, and they're fairly straightforward to fix with the right tools and equipment and training. So the fear is not only what if they start going one step further and saying, oh, you can't use the generic chips anymore. You have to use the branded chips that only we can programmatically make the device recognize. And we're seeing that happen in MacBooks. So MacBooks under this veil of security, you can no longer replace certain chips on the board, right? In phones, that's not really so much of a thing right now. There's only the couple of chips that are the CPU and the other CPU that are unique to the phone. So in order for me to be able to troubleshoot, why does your phone turn on but doesn't have image? And let's say, and this is a real life case all the time, let's say that the actual culprit is a tiny little component that is about the size of a speck of pepper. Totally replaceable, straightforward, easy. Teenagers can do it. But in order to be able to do that, they have to know on this city, you know, they need to have a map so that you can use a multimeter and figure out which one of these specks of pepper is the problem. And we fix that problem, I don't know, thousands and thousands of times, not just us, anybody that does what I do. And in order to be able to do that in a robust, practical, efficient way, we depend on schematics falling off a truck in China that somebody then the internet. I mean, those trucks in China go over some bumpy roads and there are schematics for many devices, but not all of them. And yet no one has ever actually created a threat to the real intellectual property. 
you know, we've yet to see in any actual harm come to the manufacturer from that practice, other than the fact that lots of people have fixed their stuff that otherwise wouldn't have been able to. You provide an, an amazing amount of accessible information via your YouTube channel, whether it be fixing tutorials or information on policy. And you also run trainings, as we've been talking about, for repair businesses to skill them up. Why is this a part of your work that you want to dedicate time to? I started doing YouTube because I wanted people back when I began to really understand and challenge the answers that they were getting from what I call branded repair. So I don't like the word authorized. Authorized implies authority. I'm not sure we want to use the word authority with the guys that are the least likely to be able to diagnose your phone problems. But I like to use the word branded, which means the same thing. So if you go to branded repair, which means going to the Apple store or Apple quote authorized service provider, they're going to give you an answer that is a lot of the time different than the answer that I would give on whether or not your phone is repairable. So I wanted to do whatever I could to just help people to challenge the idea that the branded repair is in their best interest. So I started just live streaming the kind of stuff that I was doing. Plus, there's this cool aspect of solving a really important problem in someone's life when their phone with all their memories trapped on it. And to be able to see that phone come back on, is there's something very rewarding about that. So we started just telling those stories on our YouTube channel to inspire people. When you go to the branded repair with your dead phone and you tell them all my memories are trapped in here, they will tell you that is too bad. There's nothing you can do. And then they will harvest your potentially repairable memory device and chuck it in the back and you'll never see it again. And we need to do something to try to help people to realize maybe I should get a second opinion. And it's not just me. There's hundreds or thousands of people like me that do what I do all over the world. And you may well be able to at least get your memories out of the phone if they aren't backed up and maybe even repair it depending on what's wrong. Right. I mean, it's not just memories as well, isn't it? It's, it's people's work. I'm always writing on my phone. It would be a nightmare to lose my phone in for so many reasons, to have my phone break without me being able to back it up. You're doing such important work in so many ways. And as you've sort of alluded to already, I think, in how you've been talking, you're also a big proponent of calling out manufacturers and correcting their misinformation, especially about what types of repairs are possible. I mean, how has that impacted in your work? And what are the biggest barriers that you come up against in your repair work? We see a constant stream of what really looks similar to bullying, where people are telling us, I was told by the branded repair that this is not repairable or that my problem doesn't exist. And you'd be stunned at the kind of stuff that we hear, even from anonymous folks that work inside the branded repair ecosystem. A few of them have reached out to me and shared with me that what I see as a major epidemic, like for example, iPhone 7 audio IC issues, we know exactly what happens with the problem. It's a design flaw where the iPhone 7 audio chip is sitting on a part of the board that is highly susceptible to flexion. And therefore, over time, the connection of the chip to the board will loosen at the audio chip. And that will manifest as a whole array of audio related symptoms. And we fix that 
every day and it's a massive epidemic. And you would expect that the manufacturers, I mean, certainly they're aware of this, would have issued some type of recall or quality program. They never did. And then when we hear from these credible insiders, yeah, that's the number one box on what people are calling in about. And our standard answer is, nope, nobody else is experiencing that. That is all you. And the only thing that you can do is come in here and buy a new phone. That's so wrong. So what we try to use our our voice, whatever, you know, as, as, as best we can to show people, nope, this is repairable. This is what it is. And to challenge that and to try to fight that, it's, it's really outrageous. It's completely wrong. What people need to realize is that what we're afraid of is the path that we see that the manufacturers are taking where they are tying the function of your device to their branded parts. Now, right now, you can still go get a screen and a battery changed in an iPhone and it will work and that's fine. But we have a lot of evidence to expect that that may be threatened in the future. And here's why. We can see an evolution across time where in the iPhone 5, for example, you could change any part in that device with another one from a brand new iPhone 5. You could swap any part and have no issues whatsoever. And then with the iPhone 6, all of a sudden, if you were to swap the home button from one brand new iPhone 6 with another one, now you lose a function. You lose touch ID if you don't have the branded home button that was sold with that phone. And the only way to get a new one is to go to branded repair and have them put in another one. They can program the phone to recognize a different home button than the one that was sold with, and we can't. And that happened, then continue on to the iPhone 7. Now, you not only lose touch ID function, fingerprint sensor, but you also lose the entire function of the home button itself. It doesn't click, it doesn't do anything if I swap in a new home button. So I cannot replace the home button in your iPhone 7. And then as you continue on, we get to iPhone, let's say 10 and 10S. So these iPhones in the iPhone 10, I can take a battery from either a 10S or a 10, same battery, plug it in, your phone will use that battery report as normal, everything's fine. But if I take that same battery and I put it in your iPhone 10S, your iPhone will say, I can't verify that this is a genuine battery. It is a genuine battery, but it, it, it chooses to say, I can't verify that this is a genuine battery. And not only that, it takes away function and it will not report the battery health anymore, how long you have left on that battery. You used to have that function, now it's gone just because I took a brand new OEM battery from a different iPhone XS into yours, you lose a function. It's kind of like HP printer ink. You got this myth that the manufacturer wants you to believe that you can only use HP printer ink. 
That's not true. You can refill those cartridges with any ink, right? It's the same thing happening with phones. And then it gets even worse. Now here comes the iPhone 11. And now if I change the screen, even an aftermarket screen or even one from a brand new iPhone 11, you are going to get a message that says, I can't verify that this is a genuine display. They make it really difficult for you to even click out of that message or to click out of the battery message. So right now it will turn on you can see the screen, you can touch the screen, it will work. But that track record of this increasing encroachment on branding parts to the phone, it really seems likely that if they could get away with it, then they would be able to finally go one step further and make it so that we could not change your screen or battery. That's a very serious reality. And that's why the right to repair is important to see that train coming and to become very vocal about it now so that we let manufacturers know we are not okay with you requiring the use of branded parts in your device. As consumers, we are not okay with that. And we need to make that known now and tell them we are not so dumb that we are going to be convinced that your branded repair center is doing repair. You're not, you're harvesting our repairable devices. You're refurbishing them and you're selling them back to us. You know, authorized repair equals sales. And we are not going to be so dumb that you can convince us otherwise. And, and we're going to start yelling about that. Yeah, I mean, you're, I'm feeling fired up just hearing you talking about it. I'm, I'm ready to, to get out there and, and, and shout, in Europe, environmental organizations and, and frustrated consumers tend to be at the forefront of campaigning for the right to repair. While in the US, professional repairers seem to be getting more involved. Why do you think that's the case? Or do you think that's the case? I think that we have a lot of work to do with YouTube in educating consumers. A lot of folks are convinced that with their mobile devices, at least, that authorized repair is repair but they don't realize that it's not repair. So the example that I use a lot is one might think if you buy an iPad and had an unfortunate case where that iPad screen cracked, one might think that the manufacturer would be willing to repair that. And that is not true. Apple will not repair your cracked screen. Now that's such a basic problem. Like that's news to everyone, right? The truth is that if you look on the Apple support page, they're going to use the word repair. And to most of us, repair means I give you my iPad, you fix it, I get my iPad back. That does not exist. So what you can do, you can go down to the branded repair guys, you can give away your iPad that you've had your entire time. You can take all your data off of it, give it to them. And then they will harvest that. And then they will sell you somebody else's refurbished iPad. So it's sales, not repair. They are refurbishing them and they are selling you another one. And the price that you're going to pay for that is a sales price, right? I mean, this stuff is like 599 bucks. So for any problem that your iPad has, your option with the branded repair is sales of refurbished devices. And that message is not clear to the average consumer. They think that it says repair and they're going to go back to the guy that made it. They're going to fix it. Nope. You're never going to get back your iPad. 
it's kind of like a pyramid scheme, right? Like what if you were designing a way to say, how could I make the most money out of quote repair? I'm going to take your phone where it needs like a charge port. Now charge port, my cost as a manufacturer is what, like a dollar. So I'm going to convince you that I need to harvest this device that only needs a $1 repair. I'm going to send that back to the mothership where I don't even have to train a bunch of people to use their brain and actually troubleshoot. I'm just going to have like six guys that I'm just going to send all these to, and then I'm going to pay them, take, do the repair, you know, just take the board out, stick in another one. So they're going to send it back to the shop. And for you as the consumer, you've just given away your repairable device. You've given it away. And now you're being forced to buy the last guys at refurbished pricing. Man, that is a great scheme. Bravo, Apple. Well done. Well done. And that's what they're doing. They're convincing us that they're helping us, that they're keeping things secure and that it's all about standardization and they want us to have the best possible experience and they don't want us to be, you know, polluted with tiny imperfections or the adhesive isn't quite right. And what they're really doing is a pretty awesome pyramid scheme of refurbishing sales. And I think it's time to wake up and to say, we'd like some choice and I'd, I'd like to have the option to get my stuff actually fixed by somebody who's going to actually fix my device. Wow. I mean, I, I, I'd never got my head around it in quite that way before. So like I, that is infuriating to think of, of, of Apple doing that. And also, you know, I, again, I'm ready to sort of like get out on the, on the barricades once I've got my second jab. You're on the board of the Repair Preservation Group Action Fund. What are you trying to achieve with that project? So Repair Preservation Group is an entity that was created by my good personal friend, Louis Rossman. We met years and years ago at a conference where at the time, neither one of us knew anybody else that did micro soldering. So he also does micro soldering, but for MacBooks. And it was an amazing feeling to find somebody in the wild that actually did the same crazy stuff that I was doing in my dining room with a microscope and a multimeter and a soldering iron. We struck up a conversation and I remember telling him that I was dumb enough that I would try to find the location of short circuits by using my lips to feel for heat. Now, this was before we had free spray or thermal cameras. And I told him this thinking that he would think that was absolutely ludicrous. And he just looked at me and he said, yeah, I used the side of my face. And it was like, my brother, you know, <laughs> it was a really, really cool thing to meet someone else that shared that history. And ever since that moment, we've been really good friends. So Lewis asked me and another friend, Justin Millman, to join the board of the Repair Preservation Group, where Lewis received a grant from a YouTube viewer that's significant and has been tasked with a mission of going out and trying to promote repair. So we decided that the mission of the Repair Preservation Group would be to try to do whatever we could to make non-branded repairs, independent repair, to be affordable, accessible, and reliable for all people. And that's our mission. Now, there's a lot of things that we could do, and we're still brainstorming ideas. And we'd love to hear from your listeners, what are some good ideas? We've gone around and started talking to some shops. How can we help you? One of the things that has come up is repair.wiki. 
and repair.wiki is going to be a place to collect, annotate, and collate or vet various solutions to repair problems. What we'd like to put out there is for people that have, you know, let's say right now if a MacBook comes in, I may not be aware, oh yeah, this goes bad all the time in the same way that I am with iPhones. I'd like to go to repair.wiki and have that be a resource that says, these are the places where this goes bad. So the signature problem collection. So repair.wiki is one project of the RPG. And we're interested in all sorts of other projects. I'd love for my own history of connecting girls with technology. I love the idea of doing some summer camps or some high school level training to just try to get young people to value repair so that when they go on to work for these tech corporations, they will keep repair in mind and kind of value that and want the products they design to be repairable. I'd love to do regional conferences, you know, all sorts of things. And we'd love to hear from you guys, you know, what would be cool for Repair Preservation Group to do? And in addition to lobbying, of course. On the 11th of June, New York State Senate passed their first right to repair bill. Do you want to say a little bit more about this? And do you see it as a big step forward? And were you campaigning for it? I mean, we understand it doesn't fully change the law as yet, but hopefully it will lead to some very positive things. So in the US, we have federal law, and then we have state law. And at the federal level, this idea of saying, we'd like to propose that manufacturers are just not allowed to make branded parts and repair service that are tied to the function of the device. That's really the heart of what right to repair is in the United States. So at the federal level, the fight has been with the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC. So the FTC already has some laws out there, the Magnuson-Moss Warranty Act. You're not allowed to require the use of branded parts or service to the warranty of the device. And there's plenty of examples. Nathan Proctor made a recent blog article about that that said, hey, look what happens if I call up not just phones, but I'll call up, you know, coffee maker, Corig or LG or anybody and say, can I open up my washing machine, take a look around and have it still be covered under warranty? And the answer to the letter of the law is, yes, you are allowed to investigate your own property and you're even allowed to use aftermarket parts and try to fix something over here. And then when something in another part of the device fails, it's still under warranty. And so if you call up and you ask all these guys, like, do you void the warranty simply by me taking a look at my own device? They say, yes, they're not allowed to do that. They can't require you to use their branded parts of service. So that one aspect at the federal level is saying, hey, why don't we try to inspire the FTC to do its own job, which is enforce your own laws. Now, there's currently no law that says you're not allowed to tie the function of the device to branded parts and service. So that's another initiative is at the federal level, can we get a law like that? So that's another aspect of right to repair that that is sort of kind of coming soon. Now, at the state level, States are generally the places where consumer protection is battled out. That's generally a state level thing to decide. And that's why right to repair you hear about in all these different states. And to date, there's no 
state that has actually fully passed any of these right to repair bills. You know, and it's tough on them. They're lay people. It's our job to educate the lay people that make the laws why this is important and why it's really not dangerous from a security or safety perspective, like the manufacturers are desperate for you to believe. So that's been going on for several years. So the New York State Senate passed the right to repair bill that's in front of them this year. And that is a first. So that has never happened before. It doesn't create a law because the New York State Assembly still has to pass it. And they do not seem inclined to do that in the states. The primary thing that these guys have to do every year is pass a budget. So they spend like 80% of their lawmaking time passing the state budget. And then they got this tiny little window to do everything else. And they have a lot of good stuff, easy, low-hanging fruit that they can pass. So right to repair is a big one. And it's hard on them. And I get that. But we need to pressure them. This is important because if you continue to do nothing, we're demonstrating. How's this getting worse and worse? This is the thing. Every country every state have different ways that we have to get in and tinker with the the laws as much as tinkering with our devices manufacturers seem to be coming up with new barriers to restrict repair all of the time faster than any regulation can deal with do you think that that trend will eventually change no i don't not as long as they have a pyramid scheme to protect if you ask me are they going to continue to make it more difficult to repair these devices probably yes however we see that they do listen more than anything else to public outcry error 53 bricked iphones for many users rendering them completely useless the error happened when the user updated their operating system after a third-party repairer had replaced the home button or touch id on their iphone 6. so you'll notice that you know error 53 was something that was around a couple of years ago and it was around in the repair community for about two years before one day it happened to a journalist and he wrote an article about it and then the whole world knew about it and there was a lot of public outcry. That is not okay. And it took maybe a week or two before error 53 just went away. Apple chose to say, yeah, okay, we tried it, it didn't work out. Now, even if you have a third party home button on there, your device doesn't become a brick. You know, fine, that's too far. We heard you, that's over the line. It's real fun to look up and see what their initial statement was. Their initial statement, which they changed, was this is to protect you from third party repair and they kind of threw us under the bus. And then later they completely changed that to something that maybe would sell better with the public. So they are, you know, a publicly traded company, you know, all these guys, they respond to the public. And if enough people push back and say, we don't want to play in your pyramid scheme, we want to be able to fix your devices, we want more choice, then I think they're going to eventually feel some pressure. They could, and they seem to be listening. So let's speak really loudly because we have their ear. It is fascinating and inspiring to hear about Jess's unique journey from an academic to a stay-at-home mum to a pioneering professional repairer. And she clearly has a deep love for the work that she does. 
It's possibly even more inspiring to hear her take on the huge flaws of manufacturer-led or branded, as she calls it, repair. Jessa Jones's message is a wake-up call. If a manufacturer tells you a product can't be repaired, don't trust them and ask an independent repairer instead. This is a very practical explanation of why we need a right to repair and why we need an opportunity to choose who we get to repair the products that we own. The goals of community initiatives and of the Restart Project are the same, to be able to extend the life of our devices and prevent the waste that they generate. Jessa uses the word fear to describe her concerns about the rise in serialised parts and other repair barriers. And whilst it is a daunting issue to face, that fear is being turned into action and outcry by repairers across the world. Restart Radio is a show aired on Resonance 104.4 FM and a monthly podcast uploaded to the Restart Project website and found wherever you get your podcasts. As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at therestartproject.org, where we've also set up a fundraiser. So if you've enjoyed this episode, do make sure that you donate there to help to fund the future of the podcast. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sounds. And big thanks to Restart's communications assistant, Holly, who did the research and planning for this episode. And now it's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>